Hello and welcome back to another week as we continue our exploration through the Gospel of John. I'm Colin and today Pastor Brian tackles the first of the seven I Am statements found in John. We find Jesus in Capernaum where he tells the assembled crowds, I am the bread of life. They were looking to him to satisfy their physical hunger, but Jesus wanted to feed their souls. They wanted bread, Jesus told them, to instead seek the food that gives eternal life, food which only he could provide. Pastor Brian reminds us that while we are physical beings, we are first and foremost spiritual ones, created with the hunger that only Jesus can satisfy. Here we are in, in the sixth chapter of John uh, once again, and this is a long, long chapter, and there's so much here. And we're going to zero in today on the first of the I am statements. And so verse 35 is where we will, we will land here in a few moments. But it's there that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, these I am statements are significant because if you remember, God revealed himself to Moses with the name, I am that I am. But when you hear that, you wonder, well, what does that even mean? Moses says to the Lord, who should I say sent me to the children of Israel? God said, say, I am who I am, has sent you. So there are two ideas expressed in I am that I am. The first is that of the aseity of God. Now, aseity is a theological term that expresses the idea of self-existence. So God exists by his own power. He alone is self-existent. Only God is self-existent. And, and this, of course, is what puts him in that category all by himself. It is this characteristic that separates God from all other things. God alone can say, I am that I am. So, so that's the first uh, idea. But there is another idea behind God's name being I am that I am. And we'll come back to that in a moment when we look at the 35th verse. But before we do that, let's kind of just catch up in the context. Remember here the backdrop, as we saw from our previous teaching last week with Jordan, is the miracle of the multiplying of the loaves and the fish. So, so that's the backdrop for all of the events that we're reading about now and we'll look at as we continue through the sixth chapter. So in that context, there are a few things that I want us to see before we get to our main point in verse 35. Number one, look with me at verse 26, or verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, 
you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So the first thing I want us to notice is that Jesus exposes their wrong motive. And it's really, I mean, to me, it's, it's kind of fascinating to think that this, this group of people, I mean, imagine you're there and this whole thing happens where there's a multitude of people 10,000, 15,000, we, we don't know the exact number. We know there were 5,000 men alone, not to mention women and children. And we know the story. There are a uh, few loaves of bread, a few small fish, and the entire multitude eats and is satisfied. Now, wouldn't you think that you would just be absolutely awestruck at the miraculous element of this. Wouldn't you think that people would be saying, oh my goodness, who could this person be? But Jesus says that's not what they were thinking. They were thinking, man, that guy fed every one of us. That's amazing. Maybe he'll just feed us all the time and we won't even have to worry about <laughs> our daily meal plans or any of that. I mean, that's, that's what's in their head. So the point is their, their thinking is completely on the level of the flesh and they're, they're missing the spiritual component here entirely. So that's the first thing. Secondly we see that he corrects their misguided materialistic pursuits. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that spoils. Or I'm more used to the New King James. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal. So <clears throat> Jesus is talking to them and presenting to them spiritual realities. They are thinking purely in materialistic terms. And they're ready to labor for the material that will never, ever satisfy and so Jesus corrects their misguided materialistic pursuits. And then they ask him. So the, the, the context here is working or laboring. And so now they're asking him in response. So, okay, so what? You're, you're telling us not to labor for these materialistic things. So how do we labor for God? What is the work of God that we can do? And Jesus answered, verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So now Jesus points to faith in him 
as the new way to know and serve God. So they don't understand how they are to serve God. Jesus tells them, this is how you serve God. Believe in the one whom he has sent. And then, as we go on, verses 30 through 33, he says, or or they said, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So notice, they... They say, what sign will you give? Remember, we, we talked about how John's gospel centers around seven signs and seven sayings of Jesus. So remember, John tells us the, his, his uh, pur- purpose statement in writing this gospel was that people might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing they may have life in his name. And and so then he frames everything around these signs and around these sayings. And so this is one of the signs. And they're asking him, what sign will you give us? Again, it just, it speaks of the utter hardness of the hearts of the people and the, the fact that they're just so conditioned to think materialistically. And, and this, is, this is the natural state. And you know it. You know it by experience. You know it by observation. I mean, isn't it amazing? I, f- I find this fascinating in a sad way that, that people whose lives are just a wreck and you talk to them about Jesus or you talk to them about the things of the spirit, you talk to them about the possibility of a whole new experience in life and they, they just can't even, they, they, they can't even conceive of it almost. It's, um, it's just like, like these people. Jesus does this amazing miracle and they're going, so, so what sign are you going to show us? What do you think you just saw? But, but it's the, the blindness of the human heart. The Bible has taught us from the very beginning about the blindness, the hardness, the wickedness of the human heart. But you know, I think that we've a lot of times been tempted not to really believe it. Not to, not to not believe it in the sense that, oh, I don't believe that, but just like, oh, I, I'm not sure if hearts are as hard as the Bible presents them. I'm not sure if people are as evil as um, the Bible says. You know, but people are pretty good. And you know, I mean, I was a sinner, but I wasn't that much of a sinner. 
Or maybe I was a big sinner, but I could have been a bigger sinner. <laughs> but I've said this before, you know, as life goes on and the older I get and through personal experience and through observation of the outside world, man, the Bible is absolutely true. It is not overstating anything. It is stating the facts. Human nature is hardened and blinded to spiritual realities. And we see that right here with these people. So the bread was a sign pointing to him as the one who will satisfy and fulfill the hungry soul. That's what the sign was meant to convey. And as we see here, they make this reference back to Moses. Now, perhaps you remember uh, back in Exodus in the 16th chapter, that's where we have this uh, first appearance of God providing supernatural bread from heaven for the people to sustain them in the wilderness, the manna. And so they are looking at that, saying, Moses gave us that bread. Jesus is saying, well, actually, no. Um, my father has given you the bread. So just keep that in mind. Just keep in mind that there's a link. The, in, in the sense of the sign, there's a connection between the manna and between Jesus as the bread of life. And we'll come to that as we come to the end. But let's come now to the passage that I want to focus on. And that is here in verse 35. They said, sir, always give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And then he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So here is the first of the I am statements. Six other times in John's gospel, he's going to do something similar. Here, I am the bread of life. In the eighth chapter, he will speak of himself as, I am the light of the world. In the ninth chapter, I am the door or the gate. In the 10th chapter, I am the good shepherd. In the 11th chapter, I am the resurrection and the life. In the 14th chapter, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, in the 15th chapter, I am the true vine. So those are the, the seven times that Jesus uh, takes the I am and then adds to it. So this is where we come back to the name. Now, the name Yahweh is the Hebrew, I am. So when, when we, and you know, some, some people have used the word Jehovah and there was a, a time when some Bible translations even, uh, you, or, or tried to translate the, the Hebrew name for God as Jehovah. Uh, that's a mistaken translation. What they did, you probably know this, but in case you don't, in the Hebrew language, there are no vowels. There are just consonants, and then there are certain little, um, little markings that, that sort of indicate vowel sound. 
And to us, that's really awkward. You know, you think of, I mean, just think of a, a word and maybe even a longer word and, and take all the vowels out of it. And then you look at it like, okay, what, what is this? Well, in Hebrew, I mean, that's just the way it is. So it's not, it's not as perplexing to Hebrew readers as it might be to us. But what, what they were trying to understand is, so what, are, what is the vowel pronunciations that go with the, these consonants that spell out the name of God? And there was the suggestion that we take... Um, another Hebrew word that's translated Lord, Adonai, and we take the, the vowels from Adonai and we add them to the Y-H-V-H or the Y-H-W-H. And so that's how they came up with this hybrid thing, uh, this name Jehovah. But there was no warrant for doing that. There was no basis to do it. It was just simply an idea somebody had and they decided to do it. And so there was, uh, again, certain Bible translations even um, I think the New American Standard at a certain point would translate Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, translate that as uh, Jehovah. Yahweh is, I think, the better way. But I am that I am. It also carries the idea, remember, we talked a minute ago about the aseity, the self-existence is the primary idea, but it also carries the idea that God would become all that his people ever could need. I am that I am is a statement to the effect that God is all sufficient. He is the self-existent one. He is the all-sufficient one. He is and will become all that his people will ever need. So we have a spiritual need that is like the physical need we call hunger. So here we have Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Now, this would very much speak to the people at the time. I think that the general idea is more food versus just specifically bread. But it's specifically bread in this context because this would speak very much to the diet of the people. Bread was a staple in the diet of the ancient Hebrews. It was the most common and considered an essential food. So here Jesus is taking what is essential for a healthy physical life and saying, what bread is to the body, I am to the soul and spirit of mankind. I am the bread of life. Remember, they ate, they ate the bread and they were satisfied. And they said, always give us this bread, Lord. They were satiated. Jesus says, I am the bread. Just as the body is dependent on food to live, so our spirits are dependent on Christ for life. Now, we, we're dependent on Christ for life in every sense. 
but we, but we just don't realize it. You know, the letter to the Colossians, Paul speaks of Jesus as, as the one by whom all things consist and are held together. Now, we don't even, even as Christians, we don't think about that so much, do we? Do we realize that the universe is held intact by Christ? The reason that the earth doesn't spin off out of its orbit, the reason the planets remain in their proper place is because Christ is holding it all together. But we, even as the people of God, quite often we fail to realize that or to think of that. So we are entirely dependent on him, but in, our, in regard to our spiritual life, we are also as dependent upon Christ for our spiritual well-being as our physical bodies are dependent upon food. Now, the problem with the human race is that we have forgotten or in some cases denied that we are even spiritual beings. Well, materialism is probably the, the main philosophy by which the world operates. Not that everybody would be a, uh, an avid materialist philosophically or in, in their belief system, but practically the way we live, we live without much thought at all to the soul and spirit. And in some cases, particularly in the Western world, there is a denial that there is even the existence of the soul and the spirit. So there is a denying, but the reality is we are first and foremost spiritual beings. We are created in the image of God who is spirit. So although we have uh, forgotten or denied that we are primarily spiritual in nature, God has seen to it that we have an ever-present reminder of this fact and that ever-present reminder is an insatiable hunger within that no material, physical thing can fill. Now, this is, this is completely scientific. You know, science is based on observation and test and uh, hypothesis. And, and then, you know, after you do so many you have a hypothesis and you do all of the experiments and so forth. And then you come to a conclusion based upon the data. We, let's, the world is, is, is a laboratory. And let's, let's see, here's the hypothesis that human beings are insatiable that there's nothing in the material world that can bring satisfaction to human beings. What is the evidence? The evidence is all around you. The evidence is in you. 
The evidence is in your homes. The evidence is in your children. The evidence is in your, uh, your friends, your neighbors, the community. This is what we see. Today, we can often see this in the lives of celebrities. Now, celebrities are like taking, this is like uh, specimen A. <laughs> this is like, this is the number one specimen. And we see it consistently over and over in the lives of the rich and famous who, although having every material thing at their fingertips, are nevertheless empty and discontent. You know, once in a while, I will stumble across a, uh, a biography of a, a famous person on Netflix or, or whatever, Amazon or Hulu or something. And, and every, every story is, is more or less the same. Circumstances are different, backgrounds different, maybe, and but but the outcomes are generally the same. Sort of people rising up out of obscurity, uh, becoming famous through one means or another, and the the success uh, drives them to excess, and they eventually crash and burn. But in all the interviews, they talk about you know how I had everything. But man, nothing really satisfied. It's a story that's repeated over and over and over again. The recent Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial was a public display of the miseries of the rich and famous. You know, it's crazy when you think about that because if you talk to people today, and a lot of young people today still you ask them, what do, what do you want to do in life? I want to be rich and famous. That's, that's the line. I want to be rich and famous. Why? Oh, because that's where you're going to be happy. That's where you're going to be fulfilled. That's where you're going to be content. That's where everything is going to be just wonderful. Well, wait a second. Let, let's just stop for a minute. Let's go back to the experiment. Let's look at the lives of the rich and famous John Lennon biographer Robert Rosen, in a quote from Greg Laurie's new book, Lennon, Dylan, Alice, and Jesus, which is a great book, by the way, uh, he says this of Lennon. The story of John Lennon's life is that he was always looking for the answer, looking for the thing that was going to stop the pain and make him feel whole. He tried, to he tried to fill the emptiness he felt inside with money and fame, and that didn't work. It's a tragic story, no question about it. So John's story has been and is being repeated over and over and over again from the beginning of time to today. All people, everyone in the world has Avoid, And we who have come to faith in Jesus, we now often refer to that as a God-shaped void. Because we now know that the only thing that could fulfill the void was God. Every human heart has a God-shaped hole that can only be filled by Christ. Jesus 
alone is the bread of life who came down from heaven and who can satisfy the hungry heart. C.S. Lewis got it right when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. Augustine put it this way. He said, we were made by God and for God and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And this is just reality, isn't it? This is the truth. This is the common human experience. And another common human experience is for those who have put their trust in Jesus, they know what it's like to be satisfied. They know what it's like to be content. You know, sometimes um, uh, people will ask me my story, what's your testimony? Um, and the, the simplest version is that I was that guy that nothing could fulfill. And I went from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another, because I was looking for something to bring me peace, something to bring me contentment, something to take away that emptiness that it was just so prevalent within me. And I found it in Jesus. And once I came to Jesus, that was forever gone. That was forever gone. It's not to say that um, I've never had problems or difficulties or troubles in my life as a Christian. It's, that's a different topic. Um, I've had all of those things, but I've never had Again, from the moment I met Christ, I've never had again that deep sense of emptiness and discontentment that I used to live daily with. Jesus satisfies the thirsty soul. Now, let's look at some of the implications of Jesus as the bread of life. Let's make this real practical here. Now, now bread... Bread was the, like I said, it was a staple of the ancient Hebrew diet. So it was, it was very common. It was very accessible. It was very available. You go to Israel today. And by the way, we're going to Israel. They've got great bread. <laughs> I didn't take any pictures of bread. I would have put them up on the screen for, that'll make Linda happy because she likes these promotions because she's the one who puts together the trip. But no, I, I mean, you go to Israel today and the bread is some of the best stuff that you encounter. So it's common. Jesus is available to all. Jesus is available to all. He's accessible. 
there's not a scarceness of Jesus. There, his, his love is not sparse. It is available, accessible to all. Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, said this, and I think it's relevant. He said, the longer I live, the more I bless God that we have not received a classical gospel or a mathematical gospel or a metaphysical gospel. It is not a gospel confined to scholars and men of genius, but a poor man's gospel, a plowman's gospel. For that is the kind of gospel that we can live upon and die upon. It is to us not the luxury of refinement, but the staple food of life. We want no fine words when the heart is heavy, neither do we need deep philosophical problems when we are lying on the verge of eternity. At such times, we magnify the blessed simplicity of the gospel. It, the gospel is like bread. It's available to all. It's accessible. Another comparison is that of course, bread smells good. And in some cases, you might even look at it and say, oh man, that looks good. But it's not going to do you any good by just looking at it and smelling it, right? You've got to eat it. You have to eat it in order to be nourished by it. And so with Jesus, Jesus must be embraced in order to satisfy. Jesus is here. I mean, again, this is the insane thing. Jesus is in the world today. He is in the world today and he has his arms outstretched wide and he's inviting all people to come and be satisfied. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And, and the invitation is to come. But we must embrace him. We must come in order to benefit from this. It's not enough to see it. It's not enough to, to um, enjoy that fragrance. We have to partake of it as well. Now, Jesus says here, he speaks about coming to him and he speaks about feeding on him. And so obviously there is um, an analogy that's being used here. Now, as we go further into the sixth chapter, this is where uh, Jesus is gonna speak about eating my flesh and drinking my blood and this is going to be too much for some of his hearers. And many are going to leave him at that point. But again, they're, they're leaving him because they're misunderstanding. They, they think that he's talking about physical things when he's talking about spiritual things. So when we talk about feeding on Jesus as the bread of life, Feeding or food is, is this analogy that we are using to speak of how we are um, connecting with Jesus in such a way that he becomes the one who is our sustenance. 
He becomes the one who is our life. So, so just as food sustains us physically, and it's through a healthy diet, it's through nutrition, it's through um, consistent eating and so forth that we're going to become all that physically we can be. So likewise, we must feed on Christ. But how do we feed on Christ? Well, think of it like this. Jesus is the, he's the living word. He's given us the written word. The written word is that place where we connect with the living word. Remember Jesus said, or yes, God said to Moses, or Moses, and Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Moses said to the people of Israel, he said, God has taken you into the wilderness, he's humbled you, and he's sustained you, and he's taught you, he's done all of this to teach you that man cannot live by bread only but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and remember, Satan says to Jesus, take these stones and make them into bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, feeding on Jesus happens as we come to him. We come to him through his word. And we nourish ourselves in his word. Now, again, we've heard this before, and it's good to remember. It's not... We're not talking about just simply digesting scripture and getting as much down us as we possibly can. We're talking about taking it and delighting in it and enjoying it. You know, in the first Psalm where it says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in... God's law, they meditate day and night. You know, the word meditate there means to uh, chew it over, to savor it, to get every bit of flavor and nourishment from it. And when we're talking about feeding on Jesus, that's what we're talking about doing. Spending time with Jesus. Taking in his word. Doing that personally. Doing that collectively with the the people of God. Sharing it with one another. Like we would sit down and have a, a meal together. Sitting down with a maybe just a small group of friends and saying... Let's talk about God's word together. You see, these are the ways that we do what Jesus is talking about here. Feeding upon him. 
Now, as I said, there's a connection here with the manna in the wilderness and what Jesus did. And the people, they draw a connection. And remember, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. Moses did not give you that bread, but my father gives you the true bread. So Jesus is making a connection between what happened in the wilderness and what he is saying about himself as being the bread of life. And, and the, there are just a couple of things about uh, the manna that I think correlate really well to our relationship with Jesus. So let's just look at these as we close. Number one, manna, remember, was God's gift to the people. This, this is what God had provided for them. God's gift to the people sent right to them where they were at. That's the interesting thing. God, God sends them the manna right where they're at. Where, where are they at? They're in the wilderness. But they're not just stationary in the wilderness. They're not just in one location. They're going through the wilderness over this long period of time. And during that long period of time, the Lord is providing for them wherever they are. And I think about how Jesus is, again, he's accessible to us wherever we are. Wherever you're at, right where you are, just know that the Lord will meet you there. Wherever you are. You know, sometimes we think, I've got to get over here before God can meet me. No. God will meet you right where you are. He will get you over there. He will get you there. Let him meet you right where you're at. And know that he will meet you. And, and you think of how God provides this. It's obviously free of charge. And this all just speaks of the grace of God, the salvation of God, how, how the Lord is so generous and so gracious. He meets us where we're at and he provides us with what we need. Secondly, manna was all sufficient and it met the daily need for nourishment. That's the, the crazy thing about manna. And remember, manna means what is it? Nobody really knew what it was. It was like a little wafer. And naturalistic-minded theologians have tried to come up with all kinds of answers to the question of what it was. So it was this little, you know, thing that grew on a certain kind of a tree at a point in time and it would fall to the ground or it was some sort of sap or it was something like this, trying to naturalize it. Now the scripture says it was angel's food. It was bread from heaven. But the amazing thing about it is it provided all that the people needed by way of nourishment. And God provided it for them every single day. It was all sufficient and it met the daily need for nourishment. Think about Jesus, the bread of life. He's all sufficient. 
He's all sufficient. We don't need anything other than Jesus. He's the all-sufficient one. And he will supply us with, he will provide us with the nourishment that we as his people need, as we seek him. And then thirdly, the manna sustained God's people in the wilderness. Now, we are in the wilderness as the people of God, aren't we? We're living in this, this barren world. This world that is still in a state of rejecting the king. Longing for the kingdom, but rejecting the king. And it's a wilderness. And it's becoming more and more evident that it's a barren, brutal wilderness. How are we sustained in this wilderness of the world? We are sustained through the bread from heaven. Through Jesus. Through, again, connecting with him and, and letting him work in our lives and coming to him through his word and trusting him to speak to us and coming together as God's people to share the, the meal together. When Jesus stands and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. He is proclaiming that he will bring total and complete satisfaction to the human soul. He will bring total and complete satisfaction. And, and let me just clarify, he does that in a variety of different ways. And he uses people to do that. He uses different things to do that. But ultimately, it is him who is doing it. And sometimes he circumvents all of those other things and it's so obviously just him that's doing it. And some of us know those times. You know, I was speaking to a woman the other day and she was, she was distressed because she hadn't heard God call her name. The Lord hadn't spoken to her by name. And somehow she had in her mind the idea that that was kind of a prerequisite to really knowing that you're right with God is that God speaks to you by name, that he says, hey, Brian, listen. And I, I said to her, I said, you know, I can't think of a time in my life where I've ever felt God say, hey, Brian, but I can think of a million times when I know God has spoken to me. And there, there are those times that we will all experience in our own way where Jesus will meet us personally, powerfully himself. But if you put your trust in him, whether you feel that or not, he has actually done that and is doing that. And so as we close this morning, I mean, what a great portion of scripture, really, isn't it? To lead us into our time around the table. And 
as I've, as I've said before, I really think that there's something beautiful about being able to come to the table each and every Sunday. There's something beautiful about having the elements, the bread and the cup, and, and being able to just say, okay, Lord, yes, here I am again. And I'm being reminded of your love for me right now. In this bread and in this cup. And I'm also being reminded of the fact that you are the bread of life. And that nothing can satisfy. And maybe, maybe in some cases it's, but Lord, you know, I've been trying to get satisfaction in other places. Lord, forgive me. And help me to know from this point forward that there is nothing that can satisfy my soul like you. So we, we have these moments to do that. Or maybe it's just, Lord, thank you that, that you are the bread of life. Yes, I know that. I remember that. I remember the day that you came into my life and you filled the emptiness. You took away that hunger. So those are the things and, and many other things that the Spirit of God gives us opportunity as we gather around the table. And, and if you don't even know Jesus, this Jesus that's the bread of life, this one that satisfies, and maybe you've been drinking at these fountains that just never satisfy. Maybe you've been eating in these places where you're still famished. Jesus is the bread of life. Come to him and you'll never hunger. That's his promise. So Lord, we thank you that that is true. And as we gather here today around this table, so we close out this morning, thank you, Lord, that you are here to meet us and remind us once again of how thoroughly and completely you satisfy us. Thank you, Jesus.